and during some of the toughest times, I have a little piece of paper in my wallet that I keep all the time, even to this moment, uh, of different things that I that mean to me, different sayings that mean a lot to me, uh, things that I strive for, recognizing my responsibility to give back. Reoccurring mantra I got into in college where I would just say, I'm going to break the mold. Two days after my second injury, my dad flew out to Indiana and we drove home. Went right up to my room, slept for a day, and then I woke up the next morning, I spray painted my wall. No quitting me. I remember, you know, there is no quitting me and I won't, you know, I won't give up. The number one thing you gotta remember is you're transferring energy. And whatever energy you got is the energy the viewers are going to have. You are listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson, where we talk with experts of craft about their journey and what they have intentionally done to be their best self. As we talk with them, the hope is that we uncover intentional gems that you can use in your life. Now... Let's kick it over to Brian to introduce this week's guest. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the Intentional Performers Podcast. I am Brian Levinson. So excited to have you with us for another great episode today. Just a bit about the podcast. So I work as a mental performance coach right outside Washington, D.C., and I fired up this podcast with the idea of trying to find out how some of the best performers in the world intentionally set their mind. So throughout this podcast, I am going to be probing and sifting for intentional ways that these performers go about setting their mind in their performance. And so I love what I do for a living, and this podcast is an attempt to bring some of the information that I get in my job to you, the listener. Now, before we get started, I just want to tell you how you might be able to help us out. So first of all, thanks for listening. This podcast obviously wouldn't be anything if nobody was listening. So we appreciate all the emails, texts, calls. When I bump into you somewhere in the world and you say you listen, it really does mean a lot to us. So we appreciate you being here. Secondly, we do have a Patreon homepage. So Patreon is a company that helps creators like me create revenue streams for their creations. So if you want to help us out, go over to patreon.com backslash intentional performers and show us some love. Just throw a couple of dollars our way a month and you can help support this podcast and keep it going. So we appreciate you listening and we appreciate all the people that have gone over to patreon.com backslash intentional performers and have helped make this show a reality. Now for today's guest, he has quite an extensive bio. So I'm just going to give you the cliff notes version. So Mike Signer is today's guest on the podcast, and he has worn many hats. So he is a business executive, a political leader, and a public scholar. He's the former mayor of Charlottesville, Virginia, and unfortunately was the mayor when all of the madness happened last August at Charlottesville, which I'm sure you're very aware of. Uh, He also is the VP and general counsel for a company called Willow Tree. He is a lecturer at University of Virginia. He's an author and has written books like Becoming Madison and a book on demagogy which we will get into in this conversation. And Mike is a really thoughtful guy. He is very well educated. He has both a PhD and a JD. And he'll talk about his law background and also his desire to study political philosophy in this conversation. So Mike has a wealth of knowledge. We talk a lot about finding wisdom and how that works with this notion of maximizing, which he has used to become 
and and to get to where he is today. He'll talk about dealing with balance and family life and all that good stuff while being very, very active. So Mike is a busy body and he is extremely thoughtful with his words. And I know you're going to love this conversation. So when you do, if you could share it, we would be very grateful. Share it on social media, LinkedIn, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, wherever it is that you're social. And also give Mike a follow on Twitter. He is at Mike Signer. And then he also has a website, www.michaelsigner.com. So I know you're going to love this conversation with Mike. So without further ado, I present to you, Mike Signer. Mike, thank you so much for hosting me in uh, beautiful Charlottesville, Virginia. You're welcome. I don't know if you ordered the weather for today, um, but it is beautiful outside. My wife and I went to a great lunch uh, and walked around. Beautiful town, beautiful city. Yep. And uh, I'm full from fried chicken, <laughs> burger, and and I had a beer, which I don't get to have too many midday beers nowadays. So. Um, I'm I'm feeling full, but I'm feeling good. You're not the first. <laughs> so, so thanks th- thanks for hosting. Uh, I wanted to start by just getting a sense of your story and your journey. Obviously, Charlottesville, Virginia, has different meanings to different people, and has been in the news over the last year, uh, nationally and even globally. Um, but I wanted to start with you and really find out how you ended up here. Mm-hmm. Uh, so give us a sense of your upbringing, uh, what life was like for young Mike. Um, well, thanks a lot for having me, and I, welcome to Charlottesville. Um, everybody come here. It's an amazing city, especially on a beautiful April afternoon on a Saturday on the downtown mall. Um, uh, so I grew up in Arlington, Virginia. Um, I'm the oldest of four kids. I've got three younger sisters. Um, my, we moved to Virginia so that my dad could work at the Washington Post. Both, both of my parents are journalists. Um, my mom has a master's from the um, Columbia School of Journalism from a time when very few women did that. So very um, strong personalities, very committed to truth-telling and stories and and very interested in current events and public affairs in my house, you know, from a very young age. Um, I was very involved in in activism from a from a young age. Um, I went to uh, Earth Day, I think I was a junior in high school, which Al Gore did and in Washington, D.C., and I think it was like 1989. And I came home very fired up about the environment and started this environmental club at my elementary school. And all of a sudden, it was one of the biggest clubs in the high school, and we were kind of using all the networks that you have at a high school to do all these activist projects. Like we distributed compost bins everywhere and we would sort of use the system where you could have kids go and deliver messages to people in class, you know, who are runners and we would have them deliver all these messages on behalf of the environmental club. And it became kind of a big deal and it was at all these committees and, um, so, you know, from a early age, I've really cared about, kind of throwing yourself into a cause and trying to effect some kind of positive change directly. Um, I, you know, I kind of fast forward through a lot of different things. I went to uh, Princeton University. Um, I was a work study student there all the way through. I, I was, um, um, and then I came back after graduating to Virginia. I worked um, 
both on Mark Warner's U.S. Senate campaign, and then I worked in the Virginia House of Delegates um, for Cree Deeds, who ended up, you know, later being a state senator, running for governor. Before before you go on, I want to just go back to childhood for a second. When you were starting those clubs and showing sure. le- leadership and being an activist, what were your parents telling you? They were proud of me. I think they were also a little surprised at the energy that I brought in and how much, how independent I was in choosing some of these Why were they activities. surprised? Well, because I think I did these things on my own entirely on my own initiative is what I, is what I remember. Um, I, I, you know, I think I probably surprised them at how kind of, I mean, I, that club got really big. It was, it had like 12 different projects going on and 80 or 90 members. If I remember that this public high school and, um, you know, I, I think that it was something that I really wanted to do. I don't, think that I had, you know, I don't think my parents or a mentor or anything was, was leading me, was leading me onto it. Um, which it's a very perceptive question. I think that's probably a consistent thread. If I think back through a lot of my leadership activities over the years, you mentioned truth telling being a part of what your parents taught you. What were other values that, that they passed down to you? Self-teaching, um, caring about books and ideas, having a pretty rigorous sense of, of um, how powerful learning could be, but also doing it yourself. Um, you know, like I remember my dad when I was pretty young, our nighttime reading was the dictionary. He would, we'd lie there in bed and literally read the dictionary, read like big words in the dictionary. And that was pretty cool to for that's you know if i'm like eight or nine years old we're sitting there reading the dictionary what kind of writer was he he started off as a political journalist well as well he started very early in his career as a i mean I, he had the full gamut of of a cub reporters arc so he wore he graduated from the medill school of journalism at northwestern worked in chicago journalism started on the night beat um, worked his way up to become the city editor of the Chicago Daily News, was there up until it folded, which was a hugely traumatic event in his life. That was one of the things that brought us to D.C. Then he was a editor. So he became a kind of reporter's editor for the latter part of his career and worked with Ben Bradley and some of these other you know luminaries at the Washington Post. Okay, and dad is an editor. What was it like for you when you had papers to write in high school? Was he editing your work? Was he interested in editing your work? I think my mom was probably tougher, tough editor, very specific and tough on like use of commas and use of words and, um, but also very creative. So my dad always had it. He, had, he, he lost his job when I was in ninth grade and had due to a, a basically a, a, illness and has not worked since then. I've talked about this in a few different contexts or has barely worked since then. And, but has focused a lot on creative writing and poetry in, in all those years since. And so there was this, um, kind of creative writing side to him 
that was very left brain, right brain. And so I grew up very interested in, in creative writing too. And then my, but also with that, there was a lot of that editor, you know, like very, very tough red penned, you know, (laughs) uh, writing samples, college essays, papers, whatever. And, it probably all does help explain why alongside a lot of the other stuff I've done, I've really cared about writing and, and books and the power that books can have, the power that journalism can have, you know, an essay at the right time for the right reasons. Um, so. How did you handle editing when you were in high school? I always liked it. Mm. I think editing is really powerful and I enjoy editing myself. I enjoy editing other people. It is a really painful process a lot of the time because it is similar to a much bigger life lesson or pattern that I've certainly had, which is a lot of the time, you know, this is like the fail upward stuff, like the the things you start with, the ventures you take, the bridges you use to get to another place, that's what's got to go and sort of basically be cut off. And its only utility was in where it got you. So if you're a pretty ruthless editor, both yourself and for others, I mean, this is certainly how I am as a professor or when I read other people's stuff with my own books, with my, you know, with, with stuff I do in a corporate setting or politically. And it's what I grew up with, but I, I realized, I think even then that it was like, you know, even if it was painful to look at my mom or a teacher or whatever, lop off a paragraph or say this is this is flabby or you know the experience over and over again of seeing how much better something got after that was worked for me and so i i still see that all the time i'm i'm like smiling inside because my dad's a journalist by trade oh and i can remember being in like eighth grade and giving him a speech and him just redlining it yep yep and i I had a completely different experience than you. So after uh-huh. it, I would st- I, I was I think I was afraid of having my work edited. And I think that held me back in the future at different mm. points um until I finally got to a point where I was comfortable with being edited, but so I I was just I'm, and I'm still a little curious about why you embraced it when maybe I like for me, I, I had that experience and I was like, mm, nah, I'm just not going to even edit it myself. Like, oh, this is the raw f- f- uh, version of Brian, like take it or leave it and uh, impacted, I think, grades and, and performance for me. Um, any idea what inside of you allowed you to um, not take it personally? That is such a good question because I am recently thinking a lot about what it is when people take things personally, you know, and all in uh, professionally, politically, I've been thinking about with other people with, with, um, you know, myself, my family, look, you know, looking at, uh, I've gotten to know a lot of other political figures over the last, um, couple of years more closely than I had before. I'm in this fellowship program that the Aspen Institute runs and have got, you know, a bunch of other democratic and Republican, elected officials and had these conversations about thin skin versus thick skin. And what is it that somebody has to, to get them to this place where they really can be resilient through criticism, 
what you really need to have. And I, I had never, up until you asking this question, thought to think about how that, how writing, how I am in in, in writing. Um, sorry, so that was a very long-winded way of getting around to. I think the answer is that from a fairly early stage, I, I did a lot of, um, there was some, there was some reading and learning I did about writing itself and knowing that what the process was like. There's a book that Annie Dillard wrote, who was a, who was um, both a poet and a novelist called the writing life where she, it's a beautiful book. And I read it, I think in early college and it is very beautifully written, very tough and very specific about what being a writer is like. And she talks about how it's solitary. So you read these books and you think, you know, they're full of amazing scenes and society, whatever you're reading. But the odds are the person who wrote that book did it by themselves in a room, mostly by themselves over and over and over again, having to edit themselves. And it's a solitary journey. You have most writers write by themselves in a room. And she actually gets very, it's not just a room. A lot of the time it's in you know, it's not like you're writing outdoors in nature or in a cafe. A lot of the time you're writing at home by yourself and that's the environment and you have to deal with that. You have to understand that. And you also have to understand um, that writing gets better the more that it's edited. Sometimes it's very slow. Sometimes, um, you know, sometimes you have very painful things like, I, you know, um, I mean, I, I tried to write three books before I wrote my first book and I had another agent and a lot of failure and writing good writing has a lot of failure in it. It has a lot of failure. Even if you have a book contract or even if you have an editor, you know, an agent and you go through 12 book drafts, the book proposal before the agent is finally ready to send it out. You know, I mean, a lot of my best essays or op-eds failed a few times or were the product of a failure earlier on that was rejected. And then there was one nugget that made sense. I mean, my book becoming Madison began as a, um, as an article that was rejected by the new Republic and a couple other places, but then there was enough in there that it, that it was actually better as a book. And, um, which is rare, by the way, rare that something would be better as a book than, than an article. Yeah, yeah. But, but that's, that's what, right. But, it took all that failing and setbacks to understand that. So I think if you've got a resilient outlook on it and you see it as a journey and you don't take it personally, I think that's, that's really, that's really a good insight. And you, but you have to understand that it, it's a, the quality is only going to come through the adversity and editing is adversity. Editing has to be like, this is how I am with my, students or even in a in my corporate context like when i'm editing stuff here you know at my at my day job i'm the vice president general counsel of a tech company and i and a lot of the time i'm i'm running the documents that are moving the ball ahead on a on a deal or on a communication with an you know with a partner or, or some other you know an external party or whatever and it really matters how you write and it really matters how you're communicating and sometimes i'm we have to be very tough with, with how that language is. But it, you know, one thing I've learned, especially in, in politics is, and in government, is that all the work that can go into the right phrase or the right sentence or the right speech, 
even if it was painful, even if it involved 200 setbacks, a lot of criticism, it's worth it because words and language matter so enormously. So I think that's the piece that I was going to in my head, which is for you, the juice was going to be worth the squeeze of, look, you painted this picture of parents, very well-educated, high achievers in academia, and then also career-oriented. Um, yeah. And then you kind of floated in there going to an Ivy League school. Mm-hmm. Um, were, were you driven to get to an academic institution like Princeton um, in high school? When did that come into the picture for you? And I'm, I'm wondering if that also, if the vision also allowed you to realize, like, I'm going to need to edit if I want to get to where I want to go. Interesting you should ask that. My um, mom is in town, and we've been having this conversation just, you know, mother and son. You know, you get to certain stages in your life, and you start reflecting and talking candidly to your parents about how do we get here? What's and, and I've been, you know, we've been having very honest conversations about what, um, wh- where did some of those the, the the drive that you're talking about or the the goal setting come from? And I've been really curious because I'm 45 years old now, sort of you know taking stock, looking back, and thinking about different things. And um, I, yeah, I mean, I I think it was a combination of very high standards set by parents for their oldest son. Um, there were some deeper things that um, I was born in a intentional community in India um, with my mom alone. This is a, this, you did not see this coming, but yeah, I love that you're dropping this. It's like, all right, tell <laughs> yeah. me where the journey started. All right. So now we're getting, the, the podcast is called intentional performance. Yeah. So tell me about this intentional community, intentional community. Yeah. So it was called Oroville and my mom was there in the midst of a five-year journey she took after her father died and she had been a journalist and she started traveling around the world, ended up in India, ended up, uh, had been all over Middle East, Europe, um, in the Far East, and um, that was what it was called then, and uh, and then ended up back in India in this community called Oroville, and then she ended up... um, in a relationship with my biological father who then died in a car accident while she was pregnant with me. Then I was, which is a whole story unto itself. And then I was named after I was born by the guru of the village, a name from the Indian Vedas, the name of a prophet, which meant the name is Atri. And it meant consumer of experience. And it was like a very noble name that, that the, um, decided it was very rare to be named by the this amazing story but by the the guru of the village so and that was my name until I was in seventh grade and my what was of, what was the name Atri A-T-R-I Atri. yeah so my my legal name and um I but I go by my middle name Michael and my mom really thinks that that it, having that you know that provenance if you will is one of the things that led her to, you know, kind of push me so hard and have this like, you know, this special quality of really, of really pushing on a lot of fronts to really, to really achieve. Was she telling you that you were special when you were growing up? Apparently. I mean, I remember, I sort of remember. Yeah. But if you, you know, it's been hard for me to remember what actually happened versus what, 
was repeated over the many years or what we talked about a few years ago. So, but yeah, I mean, I, that from what she's telling me and, um, you know, that I think in combination with lots of other, with just very high standards about, you know, achievement and also, uh, you know, I, I, I think that the, so my mom is, is Jewish, but wasn't really practicing very much. My dad, his father was Jewish, but was mostly secular. His mom is Italian Catholic and was a little more sort of influential in his history. But the, that the tikkun olam idea that there's really, you really have a burden to try and heal the world that you should really pay attention to this stuff and think about it and think about yourself as vested, connected to breaches, you know, just be conscious and aware, but also a little guilty. I mean, really thinking about what's out there that needs work. Um, I think that that combined with these other things created this blend of, of, um, you know, interests that, that knitted together for me and in a lot of the work that I ended up doing. What's your spiritual framework now? Well, now I, you know, I'm, I'm a, I'm Jewish and I'm, I practice kind of at my own level um, and pray and contemplate in my own, in my own ways. I see it as fairly private, um, but I also, it's a, it's a, it's a, um, a cause and a, and a faith that I've gotten closer to as I've gotten older. And I've talked about this in a, in a few talks I've done recently. I was in Jerusalem, um, I think about three weeks ago at a conference that the foreign ministry did and spoke there as well as at the B'nai B'rith Youth Organization's international conference, which was like crazy, 3,000 Jewish kids in Orlando, like it was like at the Olympics. And talk, told them also how this has been a passage for me because I grew up um, assimilationist and fairly frightened of being an other, being otherized in in you know waspy Northern Virginia suburbs. Yeah, because we grew up in Maryland, uh, yeah. so Arlington, Virginia. For those that don't know, not typically a hotbed for Jewish people, but right across the river there is a you know pretty vibrant Jewish community. Right. Um, so what was it like to be an other? It was hard for me. And I think the underlying reasons for that we could spend hours and hours talking about, but, but, you know, suffice to say that I wasn't, I was very worried about being a member of a group that so many people had hated throughout history. And I was very keenly aware of that. And, and, um, when did you, when did you change your name as far as what you went by? You said seventh grade? Seventh grade. And yep. what, what was the reason for that? Uh, that was, it was hard. It was hard to have this really unusual name and it was hard to, um, to be made fun of. I mean, there was, there was a lot of bullying and at, at, at some of those points, I just wanted to be, to, to be in rather than out. I mean, I'm not proud of it. I'm not ashamed of it. It's just kind of is what it is when you're, you know, 12 or 13 in public school and, you know, Northern Virginia and the suburbs. I mean, I, I, I vividly remember, you know, the first time somebody called me the K word, um, who was the kind of the brother of my best friend in the neighborhood when I was probably eight or nine, it was very hurtful. And I remember all that, all the making fun and bullying around having this kind of strange name and also having this strange history, which was hard to absorb. And, 
And, you know, I think that as you get older, one of the experiences I've had is just not just coming to terms, but totally embracing who my, this unusual history, who I am, embracing all the, (laughs) all the setbacks and, and trauma and understanding that it does fit into a bigger picture that you do, you, you know, that, that actually, instead of trying to just become a sort of neutral, you know, a cipher for it, that, that all this, all these very, you know, unusual experiences or elements are, are really exciting and an amazing part of a, of just a life that many people have. And it's one of the things that I've, you know, you get older and you realize that stereotypes, they exist for the convenience and shorthand of all of us sometimes um, with a beneficial aspect in some ways, I mean, but mostly very negative and harmful, but all always untrue. Very few stereotypes actually succeed in telling you much truth about anybody because most people are pretty unique. Most people, most people are very layered. Most people are, are, you know, the fancy word is sui generis, but they're unto themselves. Most, you know, and, and, but the, the danger of, of stereotypes is that it, people internalize them. And so they become fearful of the parts of themselves that don't conform or that are, you know, are creative, that are different. But when you sort of see the world through that lens, you see everybody as an individual, it, it changed, it, it's like almost flipping a, you know, uh, um, like a filter off a camera and you see the, you see people in a totally different light and, and you see yourself in a different light. So that's been, I think part of the, part of the, you know, basically a good journey of growing up. And that, that was how Judaism over the last 10 years really started falling into place for me. Um, especially with the second trip to Israel I did, um, which, which just hit me like, a you know, thunderclap kind of seeing and understanding what just the so many different ways that there were there of, of belonging to this faith and this ethnicity and this history and this, um, this people. And, and so it's, it's been very, very healthy. You know, as I think about seventh grade, you, I go to this notion of we have to have safety and belonging if we want to have dignity. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of people that have safety and belonging, take it for granted sometimes. Um, but you have to start there. And so seventh grade, you, you were saying you wanted to fit in and you were saying it almost like it's kind of silly, but it's really truth for all humans, right? right. Like it might be somebody who's 30 that's uncomfortable because they're in the closet and they're homosexual. It might be, and they don't feel safe and they don't feel like they belong. It might be for someone who's white and they live in an urban environment and maybe they don't feel safe and they don't belong. And, and without that, if you don't have that as a baseline and foundational, it's very hard to have dignity. And so seventh grade you is actually, and, and, you know, changing my name to try to find belonging, to try to find safety because humans, like we need that to Mm -hmm. thrive. You don't, you don't go from victim to thriving. You have to go victim survive. And then mm-hmm. when you survive, then, then you have the ability to thrive. Mm-hmm. So I think seventh grade you is, is a really interesting um, anecdote. And I'm glad that we <laughs> went backwards. Yeah. Um, so the drive to do well, the drive to belong, the drive to meet expectations, standards that were also set in the household. Um, why politics? What was, was it the environment stuff 
from high school or was it something else that was pulling you towards politics? You know, I've thought about that a lot over the last decades because it's, it's a really challenging profession to involve oneself in um, because there's a ton of exposure, a ton of criticism. Um, I think especially, you know, it gets harder and harder over the last few years for anybody. Just anybody gets a lot of criticism now with social media because there's no filter, there's no barriers, there's no anything. And so for, for me, um, I think that I, from the very beginning, found it dynamic and exciting and powerful and important in a way that that um, a lot of other things weren't. So if you, you know, anybody's worked on a political campaign, it, it you know, the idea of campaign, it is literally like, you know, it's, the, it's, it's a military term too. I mean, there, there's, there's a beginning and an end and there's a winner and a loser and there's a ton of people who have to come together and with a plan and a strategy and try to achieve an outcome. And competitive. the stakes, very yeah. competitive. The stakes are, are high almost no matter what. So there was that. Then there was the part of me that, you know, I, I went to, to Princeton. You talk about some of these themes that you've been very intuitively <laughs> identifying about um, identity. I was a complete fish out of water as a public school kid at Princeton, especially given whatever mix I was bringing there. And I was very uncomfortable from the beginning with the eating club culture and kind of fitting in. It was, it was really, really tough for me specifically. I don't know. I mean, a lot of people have that, have that experience, but was there um, imposter syndrome? Was there like, I don't belong here or probably. Yeah. I mean, and there was such a, like such a special sense of obligation that you felt being a Princeton undergraduate. That's what I remember. And I remember that, you know, like I would have conversations with friends about taking a semester abroad. Nobody wanted to take a semester abroad because they felt like it would be wasting one of their eight semesters they got being this, you know, special Princeton undergraduate because you only have this many classes you can take. There was this one semester, I think my, um, I think it might've been my freshman year or maybe my sophomore when I took six classes because I felt like so guilty that I only had this limited time to take advantage of this you know, smorgasbord that you got by being, by being there and the, the professors there and the access you had to them. And I felt, I did, I felt so lucky and so burdened almost to be there. I mean, it was very financially hard for us to do because we basically had a little bit of, of money left over from my grandmother, but then my, my dad wasn't working and my mom was covering the mortgage both on that. I think the rent on her house, but also the mortgage where he was living and, just and I was on work study and just a lot of a lot was kind of going into feeling like I had to take maximize and squeeze every like you the you know every bit of juice out of the orange. Um, what was driving you at that point? Was it fear of failure? Was it um, a desire to learn? Was it a desire to do this so you could get to the next thing? Any idea? Could you go back to that? Point? I think it was deeper than that. And I don't think it was as fear based. I think that there was this ideal that I had and that I still have that of kind of maximizing life and maximizing your experience and maximizing the opportunity to learn and really pushing every frontier of, of, 
self-achievement or intellectual breakthroughs or creativity or, um, you, you know, just, just really maximizing and taking, taking advantage because that's what, that's what life or the, or the world is. I mean, there's a lot of exciting opportunity out there. So I was, you know, and, and I guess that's the, I mean, that, that's always how, that's, that's always how I've, I've seen every day or every week. I mean, it gets a lot harder when you have young kids or when you start really taking on when you're a grown up and you have like a, a real job where there's, you know, real accountability to a real company and real bosses. And it's sort of like harder to be like, I've got to maximize every day to its art, artistic or, you know, um, moral potential, but that was, that's how I thought about things for most of my, for most of my life. So I was really, you know, you go back to, to why politics and government. I mean, I was very interested starting at Princeton. I fell into political theory and political philosophy very quickly. That was kind of my anchor there when I felt uncomfortable socially in a lot of ways. I felt I was very glad to find a, 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 like a, a cause and a, and a set of interests that still guide me now. I mean, I'm still working, you know, I've written a couple of books mostly about political theory and philosophy while doing a lot of very practical things because I really care. And, and the thing that amazed me then and still does 20 years later is just the power of ideas. I mean, an idea through political action can literally remake the world. I mean, that is what Marxism did, right? It, 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 millions of people's lives were changed through the force of that set of ideas implemented through government. And the same thing happened with fascism. The same thing has happened with liberalism and, um, in, in, you know, many different things that that means. And I'm really interested in that because we live in that world and it's a very, you know, so to me, I guess I, I saw it as a real challenging, powerful, enterprise to get involved in, which was implementing, being involved in that part of human history where ideas get translated into the things and the structures and the systems that, that for better or for worse change, you know, influence the lives of millions of people. And that's, that's what political ideas do. Was there a philosophy or a philosopher or a quote or a mantra or something that spoke to you then that still resonates with you? Is there something that it could be a political quote or something that guides you in your, in your journey. I mean, it's the danger with asking, you know, somebody who studied political theory for so long is there really are a lot of answers that I have to that. Um, you know, I, I started off, I think as a fairly immature college student, completely intoxicated by Nietzsche and by, and I studied Nietzsche all through, all through college and, you know, he, and it was very, um, powerful how he challenges conventional wisdom on every front and talks about how there's this deeper life affirming way to live your life or to set up societies and, um, you know, group mentalities or stereotypes or, or kind of weak thinking very, he's, he, you know, has written many books challenging and it was really exciting to, come into somebody who was upheaving everything speaks to the independence part that you had in high school and, you know, do the environmental stuff and 
being a, you, you mentioned an independent streak in high sure, school. Sure, but always thinking, also challenging horizons and really going very deep. But then I, you know, gradually realized how dangerous also a lot of his thinking was. And it really wasn't very political. I mean, there's really, there's not much about achieving pragmatic results for people in a lot of that political philosophy that, that are helpful. I mean, it's just, it's, there's, there's, there's a tremendous like adolescent radicalism that is ruinous when it comes into practice. So that was what I grew older. I mean, James Madison from a very early time just impressed me with both the eloquence and the economy of his ideas, but the fact that he had so powerfully been involved in government in implementing and shaping the country and really bridging the gap between these these this kind of reckoning with how people actually were and what we needed at that point, how the government had to be built to survive and to prosper. And I, I think, you know, he, and and he was a very famous graduate of Princeton. And I started understanding that at a very, you know, at a very young age. Um, Was there a quote from Madison that, that you carry with you today? Oh gosh, it's such a good question. Um, I, you know, it, I'm, I'm, I mean, maybe the, if men were angels, no government would be necessary. I mean, it's almost trite to talk about, but it, (coughs) and I think it doesn't really capture how optimistic he was, but it was also, it, it just was very insightful into the nature of people, the dangers we were trying to avert, how very real they were. Can you, can you repeat it? If men were angels, no government would be necessary. Um, And, you know, and I grew up transfixed throughout high college by what happened in World War II and the Holocaust. I mean, it was, it was very interesting and unsettling to me that, governments could have done this program. And I, I think that's what led me to develop the fascination that led me through getting a PhD afterward. I mean, I, I went to Berkeley and started a PhD program. My dissertation was on demagogues and democracy and what happened when democracy runs off course and starts becoming its own worst enemy and the people start, instead of taking advantage of this glorious gift of freedom, political freedom, which we've spent, you know, millennia trying to de- trying to achieve, right? I mean, there were large chunks of human history when most people have been feudal or enslaved or serfs or, or whatever. So political freedom is a big deal. And, but the fact is that like the Greeks saw a lot of the time societies can't handle freedom and they turn over, they, they turn over everything to a demagogue and the demagogue becomes a tyrant and then murders a whole bunch of people. And I was really interested in that, in that problem. And I think that's, if you connect that up with, with like the central preoccupation of, of Madison, especially was how do we stop this from happening in this brand new country? How do we, what do we do? How do we design this government? What's the danger on the other side? 
Um, and that, you know, that set of ideas really, I think led me through a lot of what I've, a lot of what I've done both, you know, in government and in, in writing and teaching certainly a lot of the causes I've chosen. You mentioned this desire to maximize and, you know, from a young age driven to maximize, maximize my life. Uh, you know, you, you mentioned the PhD, you also got a JD, not too many people get a PhD and a JD. Right. Um, uh, we're going to get into some of your work in the private sector, some of your work in public. Um, but what is the cost of having a mindset of, of wanting to maximize? It um, it makes it very challenging to level set when you deal with real, real life. You know, I mean, real, real life, especially if you want to have a real, real life, which I do, um, you know, I... I want to have, you know, I've got two, three-year-old boys and I really want to be a good dad. Being a good dad means that after daycare ends, you know, I want to be with them from a little bit after five o'clock to a little bit, and depending on the night, you know this with young kids, whether it's, <laughs> hopefully it's eight o'clock, but when they go to sleep, but sometimes it's nine and sometimes it's 10. And I'm, I want, you know, unless there's something else really important, I want to be with them and on and really focused and giving them a lot. And that means that for me, at least there are blocks of, of time when I'm not, I'm not available to kind of be maximizing all these other exciting achievement things. And, and I've really realized that, that that's, that's a, these are, these are part of living a balanced life and being a real person and being in a real life. And I think that the danger with maximizing everything is you, a, you can burn out by having the standards that you set for yourself be too high. B, um, it can, even if you're not burning out, it can lead to a very imbalanced, immoderate life where it um, it hurts your ability to do other good things. Like you see maximizers who are partners of Washington law firms for something, you know, for instance, you, you grew up this, I saw a lot of these people. That was a path that I, for went. I mean, I, I went to Wilmer Cutler and Pickering that then became Wilmer Hale after law school. And that's certainly a path that I could have tried to pursue is to be a partner in a big Washington law firm. But I, for me, that was not maximizing everything there is not something, the cost of it for these other parts of life for me would have been too high, whether it's you know, moral causes or being with family or, or just, um, you know, doing a lot of other things that I think are important. Um, and it's interesting cause there's, there's a tension. I mean, if you, you know, the thing about maximizing whatever it is, is it has its own logic. I mean, it, it, it fulfills so itself because it's always proving itself and it's its own audience, its own judge and jury, right? But then the people around you or the people who love you or life itself, I mean, that's the thing, like you're, you know, there's not that many people who can run at a 10 for duration and perpetuity without there being a serious setback, you know, whether it is, you know, whether it's, whether it's some kind of failure in the career or with the job itself, or whether it's just a parent getting sick or you know, some injury or, or, 
something you didn't even see coming. I mean, those things happen. So if you're not balanced and not level set, you know, you, you just can't maximize. Um, and, and that's something I've certainly realized now at, at 45, having done, you know, fair, having done all these different things and trying to think about, well, what, what's, what am I going to do over the next 20, 30 years? I'm, I'm trying to absorb and apply some of those lessons. What caused you to shift or focus or uh, adjust or adapt? What, was there a, a tipping point? Was there a moment or uh, was it gradual? I think having kids, um, getting married, A, and having to create a life around being a good husband and being a, a you know, a, like a member of that partnership, having kids. Um, I think that a lot of challenges and, and setbacks that I've had have professionally and in the different spheres that I've operated in, whether it was, whether it was running a business or I, was, I ran a law practice for this or politics or writing or, um, you know, those are probably three areas in all those. I mean, I feel like I've had some, you know, some, some success, but there's certainly been a ton of setbacks and all those setbacks go, go to becoming a more balanced, aware person that, that I think, you know, probably hopefully can be more effective in those different areas. But the, but the failures have all led me to a more balanced perspective on, on everything. I mean, here, you know, here in, in Charlottesville, um, these, you know, very traumatic last, last, um, year. And I'm just a bit player in the trauma for so many people. I mean, I've been the public face, the brunt of a lot of anger and frustration, whether it's fair or not, given the role of the mayor in our, in our system, it's, it's, it just is what it was because people were, you know, very upset at a lot of what the government did and did not do. And, you know, and also just the way that, I mean, the, the uniqueness of, of this, these events that happen here, you know, so a lot of, of my journey has been trying to extract from a ton of turbulence, um, what, what still are the, are the, is the wisdom going forward. And I've certainly, so at, at this stage of my life, I'm really, and I think thinking a lot about wisdom. I had a, a mentor who was my key mentor pass away, um, who I'd been close with for 20 years, um, about a little bit over a year ago. Um, really tragic because when you see somebody, when you really rely on somebody's wisdom to make decisions, I mean, like in that kind of, I only really had one mentor. I've had a ton of older people who have advised me on different things, but this guy I really relied on. And so with him dead, it's been really important to try and divine some other source of wisdom. Cause I can't just call up my friend Paul, you know, and, and get his advice on personal, professional, political matter or whatever. And, but in a way that's a blessing because you got to find your wisdom somehow. So, um, that, you know, has been my, has become my lodestar and wisdom is not maximizing. Wisdom is a totally different, uh, font or in a different perspective, a different star. It's, it's just, it, you know, there's, there's now, there's tons of academic work on practical wisdom, there's, there's books, there's, you know, I, I, I started thinking about it with, um, you know, Proverbs is all about wisdom. 
if you go back and read Proverbs in the Bible, it's unbelievable how it talks about wisdom and how crucial wisdom is, how what it takes to achieve it or find it or discover it. Um, and it's in, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's everywhere. And it's, it's, to me, it's really where we have a lot of fear in our society, but getting older. But if you flip that, the, the good thing about getting older is that you achieve more wisdom. What wisdom did you have before August of last year? Uh, what wisdom did you have while you were really in it? And I'd love to know your mindset as well. Wisdom and mindset before wisdom and mindset during chaos uh, and wisdom and mindset as you look back. Uh, so if you could start, you know, take us to August 1st and then sort of uh, 10 days before uh, a lot of chaos happens in, in Charlottesville. And where were you from a mental standpoint, from a wisdom standpoint? How did you see the world uh, before? Well, so I'm happy to answer these questions. I want to kind of preface it by saying I don't, you know, I'm I'm not sure there's any real victory story to be told or, you know, like a valedictory or something like that. I mean, I'm still, I'm still reflecting and still trying to get the best that I can out of these experiences. There are, you know, they're, they're very traumatic and difficult. I think that we're going to be sorting them through for a long time. I certainly have thought a lot about learning from a lot of this, that that's, one of the the things that you know I can do, we can all do. Um, and there are a lot of things that people don't know about the train of events that happened all throughout last year. So partly kind of putting them all together for me because some of it, it was just such an unlikely set of events that, that kind of one led to the other. Um, so you know, with all that said, um, the, um, you know, there, there were, what led to Charlottesville becoming the target for these forces of bigotry and hatred is in and of, is a whole book unto itself. I mean, there was a project, which I was very involved in, but of, of starting to tell the full story about race in our city as a southern as a southern city that's also a very progressive southern city but with a history of really toxic um structural white supremacy and white and um systemic discrimination so the there you know beginning in 2016 right after we became mayor there was a effort that got started to get rid of the Robert E Lee statue that we have here and I actually was on the if you talk about wisdom, I ended up over the course of a number of some months being on the other side of this because we set up a um, blue ribbon commission on race memorials in public spaces, which was which was my idea, and we and talked about it with my colleagues, and it was like, look, why don't we create a commission of some leading citizens, ended up being majority African American, and really work on this issue very carefully and don't just have it be about the Robert E. Lee statue, which was this kind of one singular symbolic um, issue that my feeling was it didn't get deep into the whole set of 
issues, both good and bad, that we were looking at about race in our public spaces. So we set up, successfully worked with my colleagues and tried using some wisdom to cast this problem much more broadly. And we set up this commission with a mission of changing the narrative in Charlottesville by telling the full story of race through our public spaces and gave them like 12 different charges, not just the statute, but advise us on all these other fronts. So how do we deal with the neglected African-American cemetery that could be refurbished? How do we tell the full story about, you know, this urban renewal project that happened where they raised a black neighborhood? Um, and then the Lee statue. So they met for six months and did 17 public hearings and really surprised a lot of people by ultimately recommending that the Lee statue stay within the borders of Charlottesville. And it was, a again, a majority African-American committee. They found that a lot, there were a lot of African-Americans, the population here, that wanted this history maintained so that we could learn from it, which was very counterintuitive. So the thing about wisdom a lot of the time is it's counterintuitive because especially today when you want virtually every political idea or position to be something that not only fits into a tweet, but that triggers a very strong emotion that usually aligns with a preconception that that's today's politics. That's not how learning is. That's certainly not how wisdom is. That's not how a lot of the best ideas are, because a lot of the best ideas involve challenging a conventional wisdom or challenging conventional idea, especially one that has a strong emotion at the end of it a lot of the time. So it's very frustrating for people who want, you know, to go from anger to outrage, to anger to outrage to to have to be derailed into a process which has listening and surprises and new information and learning and maybe something counterintuitive along along the path. That was the process with this Blue Urban Commission. So there was a whole there was a whole chapter that happened with all this. Then it's been written elsewhere better. Um, there was still a, a vote on city council to move the Robert E. Lee statue, notwithstanding um, that out of town. And there was this, there was a, a whole cycle of attacks that happened after that. Um, and th things really went just crazy in a way that you could only see in a novel with this um, this obsession by this right-wing character with a member on city council and a lot of controversy got kicked up then. And then Richard Spencer, who founded the term alt-right, it was a UVA graduate. So he got very focused on what was happening in Charlottesville and got hooked up with this figure here who was wanted to become a celebrity in kind of the right-wing blogosphere. So there really was an element of, of unpredictable chaos with, with, um, with some of these events. And I don't really know what the, what the wisdom with some of this was. I, I, other than trying to do the, the right, the right thing and trying to explain it to the public as best as, as we can, I found myself in the very, uncomfortable position when the Ku Klux Klan came to town, which was a group of about 40 coming from North Carolina of, as the mayor, having to explain to the public what the First Amendment law is around this. And we were under a very clear mandate from Supreme Court case law that 
absent a specific evidence of a credible threat, which is a planned, you know, incitement to imminent unlawful action, which really has to be, you know, most of the time has to be violence, that we, our hands were tied to stop this group from coming here. And there's tons of people who are still angry at me for for not stopping or not acting to stop, even if it would have gotten, even if it would have lost in court, the Klan from coming here, let alone what happened with the Unite the Right. But it was, it was the law. And we had very, you know, I'm an officer of the court and a we're sworn up all the constitution and these are, you know, a lot of the, ironically, a lot of the case law was created by the ACLU suing on behalf of like the Nazis marching in Skokie, Indiana, where there were a town of Holocaust survivors. So we have very clear cases decided by the Supreme Court. So the, the wisdom there, I don't know. Um, there was positive or negative, but the the job was to try and explain to the public and to follow the law as in a very liberal town, it was infuriating to people and very difficult for me personally, but it, it was, I think, I don't think I had any other choice really than to, adhere to the Supreme Court's requirements and to try and explain the theory underlying it, which is that really toxic, terrible ideas perish in the sunlight, that you don't, in this country, you know, a priori prohibit them or suppress them unless they are, you know, inciting to imminent unlawful action. And then, you know, the all of the events that went into Unite the Right have been combed over a lot. I think that they're still going to be combed over for, for a long time in the future. Um, you know, and, and I'm n- almost nobody comes out from the city covered in glory about either the, the, the decisions that were made or the way that they were communicated to the public, the, really challenging thing for the, you know, me as the mayor and the system was you have a form of government where the, all of the policing decisions are run entirely out of the city council. So you have no role in the policing at all. You don't see the security plans. You're not consulted. You don't have any decision-making authority, but the, you know, the public really wants somebody accountable when things go wrong. And so how do you choose between empathizing and and supporting their anger when there's problems with policing versus trying to tell the truth about what may have happened versus not being... Um, not casting stones within the government, which is really tough. And it it was very hard for me. And I can't say that I did some amazing job. All I can say is that I think it's important for people to try and learn from, learn from the, the policing. When I think about what Charlottesville meant, I think there are three different, um, three different sort of threads that, that all were woven together. 
during it and after it. One was Charlottesville as a signal moment in the nation seeing the alt-right for what it was and seeing the bargain that the Republican Party and that Trump and Trumpism had struck with the white supremacists in the country in part of crafting a nationalistic political campaign. So that was one part. So that that was the great reveal was that people saw what these groups were and they saw how comfortable they had gotten with mainstream politics and how comfortable they were with militaristic, you know, with seeing themselves as almost a militia. So that was, that's one. And I think that Charlottesville was very, very helpful in, in revealing that. And that was, that was probably where I felt the most comfortable in my public role as mayor here was in sort of telling the truth about this and in confronting what the Republican party had done with this bargain and, in also very directly confronting anti-Semitism as much as I could and in telling the truth about the trolling that I experienced, you know, that others did and, you know, really trying to be as confident in the face of, of terrorism as, as, as um, I could. The second thing that Charlottesville meant was, was the policing issue here, which was a huge part of the story and very, traumatizing to thousands of people here and also very troubling for millions of people around the world who saw the vice news, you know, or saw, you know, lots of, and will continue to see. And that continues to be very frustrating, infuriating for me. One of the challenging things with being a public official here was it was very hard to speak directly about a lot of things related to this because of the law and because of lawsuits. So we, and because of the way the government is designed. So it was very difficult to express frustration at, um, you know, at, at, at the level of problem that ultimately was, was really, you know, described in this report that we had commissioned because we were um, being sued and our lawyers were telling us anything you say in public could really hurt the city in a lawsuit. So you have to please be really careful. And so you have kind of that component and you're trying to be a good steward of the government itself, which is in tension with these, the citizenry crying out for, for emotion and empathy from the governmental officials. And that continues to, to play itself out and the way that the, our government is improving and having accountability and dealing with the policing strategy is really, really important. And then the third thing is equity. So one of, the, I think, the, the surprising thing to a lot of people that came out of Unite the Right was a, a re-energized focus on equity for lower income and minority residents as a rebuttal to these terrorists who came here trying to intimidate basically a progressive town trying to work hard on remedying this history that we have. And so there was this town hall where 500 people came up, you know, the, the week after Unite the Right. And one of the themes that came out of it in the Department of Justice helped kind of help run the event was they wanted us to focus on affordable housing and focus on Charlottesville making itself more 
comfortable in an era of rising rents and rising assessments and so on for lower income people, especially African-Americans. And so that was very well taken by myself and by the government. And we kind of accelerated pressure on a number of affordable housing projects. The the new mayor who got, who I seconded the nomination of um, when my term was going to end um, is an African-American woman who grew up in public housing here. And, you know, the, with her and with the new focus in the wake of Unite the Right, we've had a whole new kind of lens on equity here, which I think is really healthy and really good for the city. And that's like a third theme that came out of all this. And so in all those things, there has been a ton of very painful wisdom, I think, for all of us, for me, certainly, and a, and a lot of struggle in trying to, you know, on the one hand, deal with these these national trends that came to roost here. On the other hand, deal with very local mistakes and setbacks in a way that was both responsible and responsive. And, you know, throughout all of it, even today, I, 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 I constantly am trying to understand what the wisest perspective is and working very hard at it. So you're in a position of leadership in a chaotic situation. I'm just curious, how do you define leadership? I define leadership as successfully bringing a group of people or organizations or both to a place they would not have gone but for your relationship with them and the um, and the target or the horizon you chose to set. So I, I have a and there, there's a lot of debate within the, the you know the literature about how to define leadership. For me, um, leadership really requires an individual and a group they work with. And it, you know, one of the great debates is do leaders have to have followers or not? Can everybody be a leader? And I think leader, I think there have to be followers. I think there have to be people who the leader works with and, and leads. Otherwise to me, the, the, the word almost becomes meaningless. And I understand the, 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 and I'm sympathetic to the impulse to kind of just say, everybody can be a leader um, but I don't think it works. You don't, you know, a leader is not one person in a room by him or herself kind of having an idea. They really need to muster the energies of other people and, and bring them to a place that they would not have gone, but for the leader's involvement and choices. So that's, that's another debate is, does it have to, be successful or does it have to depend on the leader's action? And I, and I think it does. I think that, um, that that to me is the most robust definition. Um, Nan Cohane, who was the political theorist, who was the president of Duke University and is now, I think, back at Princeton, um, Emerita, she, she wrote a book called Thinking About Leadership. And that was her definition was summoning the energies of, of other, you know, groups of other people to achieve an, an outcome. And so that's how I, you know that that's how I that's how I defined it. I think that you really have to have an input an impact to have led. And how about demagoguery? Well, a demagogue is 
somebody is a, is a kind of leader actually. Um, but you know, in my, in my book and I mean, you know, certainly over the years since it came out, it came out about 10 years ago, a demagogue is meets a four part test. They, they just, they present themselves as a mirror of the masses um, usually by attacking elites. Um, that, that's number one. Number two is they trigger great waves of emotion. Number three is they use that emotion for political for political benefit or advancement, which like cultural or entertainment figures do not who meet those other characteristics, but they're really in politics. And the fourth one is they threaten or break established rules of governance. So the demagogue who puts all those things together creates a a state within the state that follows them alone. And that's why demagogues are so dangerous to democracy because they basically create a whole different country within the country that they control. And that, you know, history has shown over and over again, they can then take over the state. They can become a tyrant from within the system. So that's, that's what demagogues are. Um, And we'll just let our listeners decide if that resonates with any, anyone oh i've been very clear i mean i i you know it was, it was interesting as the book came out in 2009 it's amazing that 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 you yeah 2009 uh just so i know where we're gonna go so i'm just curious when you're writing that then uh, i don't even know like was this even this wasn't even in your mind as you're writing that book no i mean and i knew that one of the one of the biggest factors in in a demagogue being likely is economic turmoil in in a country that so the economic collapse happened in 2008 the book was mostly finished before the book came out in you know spring of 2009 but i was wondering when it came out would there be any domestic demagogue who would start to come up in the united states around that time the closest thing that I had seen in the previous years was Pat Buchanan, who was using a kind of demagogic, nationalistic rhetoric when he ran for the Republican nomination. Um, um, you know, a couple, I think it was in 96, a few years before that. But the demagogues who were in the world when the book came out were in the foreign arena. So you had um, Hugo Chavez and in Venezuela and then Ahmadinejad in Iran. And I wrote a lot about them and was thinking about them. And then Muqtada al-Sadr was a cleric in Iraq then who was very prominent and sort of frightening and met this model. So we did not have at that point, anybody on the domestic scene who met this test. And I did a lot of interviews then and I was kind of interested that we didn't. And then, you know, the book, I mean, it was a, I was very proud of the book, but you kind of, the good thing, you know, with books, you basically write them and you move on to the next one. I mean, you're not, you know, that that's that's the advice I've been given from a lot of authors I know. So I put the book out, did a lot of publicity, had enjoyed getting the ideas out there, but I really started thinking about the next book that I was going to write later on that year. Um, and, you know, so the book kind of pokes along and it's out there, but... Then Donald Trump starts running for president in 2015. And I started getting calls from all around the country in that summer, which was, is is he a demagogue? And 
I did a couple of interviews where I said that I didn't think that he was that, and I'd written one piece of the new Republic. I think when he started doing the birtherism stuff where I said, and they had asked me, do you want to write a piece about whether he's demagogue? And I said, I didn't think that he was because he didn't meet the, he didn't position himself as a mirror of the masses. He wasn't threatening established rules of governance. But I, you know, and even in the summer of 2015, I said, I didn't think that he was. And then I kept on getting calls. And then I, especially after the, well, after the Muslim ban in the fall, then it exploded. But before that, I did, I think, a interview with a, I can't even remember. I mean, I, I wrote a piece um, in the Washington Post sometime that fall where I said he has crossed the line. And I thought that it was with the invisible, the silent majority and the violence at his rallies. And he really had, I thought, decided I'm going to become this political type because I want the presidency so badly. And I think I can get the Republican nomination and I'm going to be not just a populist, but a demagogue. And it was very alarming to me because I, I had seen this and he was so, he was conforming to this type so strategically and intentionally. So I started really speaking up about it and I wrote a couple of these pieces and then was, you know, kind of interviewed all over the place after he announced the Muslim ban and that that was what I think triggered the whole country to say, oh my God, we really have a demagogue running for the Democrat, you know, the Republican nomination. And then since then, uh, you feel pretty confident that he's checked those boxes that you set out? Yeah, I mean, it. I I have been, yes, I have been encouraged by two things. One is the strengths of our checks and balances during this presidency, especially the courts and the judicial branch. And I think their independence and strength in, in just stopping a lot of proposals that would have been most harmful um, has been kind of encouraging. The Republican Congress also, whether by, you know, intent or incompetence, they still have not translated. They, they've, they've effectively stopped a lot of the, the most kind of dangerous rhetoric from becoming any sort of reality. So, you know, and, and then I think the people secondly, I mean, you've seen a, a kind of tsunami of activism from the left in response to Trumpism that has been really encouraging. It's like the people have been rising up. They've been saying, I, this is not my country. This is not our values. This, um, we're not gonna, we're going to elect people who will be a brick wall against victimizing minorities or undermining civil liberties or undermining the press or whatever else that, that he's talked about doing. And so I think the, end result of a lot of that is that a year, you know, a year and three months in, a year and a quarter in, you have a country that's more or less t together and resolved against this, this threat. Now I, you know, I'm the first to admit uh, the takeaway of my book was that there was cause for eternal optimism about America being this bulwark against demagogues. And I just was kind of repeating with applause 
Alexei de Tocqueville's argument that constitutionalism in America was so deep set that we wouldn't see a demagogue. And I felt really optimistic about that. And so Trump took me by surprise and unbelievably frightening and disheartening and scary that you would have this, this tactic work in such a mainstream way and um, caused me to question a lot of my assumptions. But a year and three months in, I, I'm much more optimistic and very proud of a lot of what our institutions and our people have done. So I want to bring it back to you and then we'll start to wrap up, sure. which is, uh, so you're a teacher, uh, you work in a corporate environment, you are a writer, you've been in politics, um, lawyer, um, am I missing something? I'm sure I am a father, dad, yeah. a dad, husband. Um, as you think about all those hats, what are the commonalities that you find uh, about the mindset necessary to be successful? Well, I really care about doing things and impact. So the reason I like being a lawyer and I've liked being a general counsel, like I was counsel to Mark Warner when he was governor during the last year of his term. Um, one of the two lawyers who worked in the office. And I really enjoyed applying both the law and wisdom and research to helping, you know, an executive in that case make decisions, whether it was capital punishment cases or, you know, policy, you know, complex criminal things like we were working on. And, you know, in, in the present role I have in the private sector, I get a ton of satisfaction out of applying whatever I can to my, you know, the executive team here and the CEO and helping solve a complicated problem. It's, it's hugely rewarding. And I think a good use of my time on the planet and this whole bulk of, you know, a lot of the learning and practical experience I have to kind of crush a problem and do it in a, in an efficient way that earns the trust of all the different stakeholders and all the different people involved and, and to do it and to do it in a way that's sensitive and that, but, but I just, I, I really appreciate in other people and appreciate in any contact and on context effectiveness. Um, and I think that politically, you know, I th the things I'm most proud of as mayor that that I did illustrated that those characteristics. So the the stuff that I found the most rewarding as mayor, a lot of the time was unseen. It was the very hard brokering um, an approach behind the scenes on the basis of research with a lot of time very opposed stakeholders. Um, creating alliances and and kind of crushing a problem. So we created an open data policy for the city of Charlottesville, which required a ton of work, a lot of overcoming a, a lot of skepticism from internal stakeholders, marshalling the, you know, an, a nonprofit, getting a whole team together of outside and inside government people to say, how do we get the city of Charlottesville setting the default so that all of our data and the government would be open, hackable by all these groups so that they can see both the good and the bad 
and do it in a way that wouldn't cost a lot of money. So have this become a, a city practice so that our data is open. That took like a year and a half, and it took a lot of unseen work um, that that I and you know did with 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 um with just you know a couple dozens of, of stakeholders and really getting buy in in our former government from from um from some leaders to kind of push it through. We did the same thing with we expanded and renewed the um the um, technology tax credit here, which was expiring. The whole city is a technology zone. So it was not clear at all that we were going to be able to do this because some people wanted to pit tech companies or creative companies against other major incumbents and, and paint them in a certain light. But getting my colleagues on board with this and getting a lot of advocacy from the, the tech community and under, explaining the benefits of this economically, intellectually, for the city to be able to then use all those dollars that these companies create for socially progressive purposes, but also how important it was to keep a creative economy that was nimble and focused on ideas rather than kind of old century things. And we, we succeeded in doing that. We expanded it from, you know, you get to take it now for seven years, 50% rebate on your taxes. Um, very proud of that. We doubled the, our spending on affordable housing, which was like when I did my state of the city speech as mayor the second year, I only presented, you know, typically you do a whole bunch of different policy ideas. I only presented one. It was just double our, our spending on affordable housing. Focus on that one area of equity where we really could reap the benefits from being a progressive city with that's booming where everybody wants to be or our assessments are going way up. Our population is increasing. Housing is increasing. So how do we, how do we use the, the, how do we, you know, the rewards from all that to plow them back into the place that needs it the most. And we did it. And we, you know, I think tr doubled the rate of our creation of affordable housing through those dollars um, during the year after we doubled the spending on our affordable housing fund and that required a campaign. It required putting things together. It required really choosing a moment. It required understanding what, is, what is it going to be like to start doing this. Um, so, you know, the, the commonality for me is just is really is really thinking about effectiveness and thinking about leadership, you know, going to a place that we wouldn't have gone but for pursuing it with the help of other people and leaders really a lot of time are followers. I mean, you have to realize a lot of time you have much less power than the people who are ultimately going to do the work or be your ally or get the thing done. So it's one of the great insights I think from leadership classes is like, you know, the CEO of IBM can still be, you know, has to be a follower when he's at the, at his kids or her kids, you know, PTA meeting. I mean, whoever's the head of the PTA is the leader there. So you have to, you know, understand that you, you're always somewhere there. You have to respect what followership is. And a lot of the best leaders, I think really do have a lot of listening and empathy and, and understand how important it is, what an honor it is to have somebody follow them. And that's at least what I aspire to. And we're, we're in a similar situation that we both have two young kids we both know that we're not the leaders of our house. So, right. So I think exactly. anyone, any, there's nothing more humbling than that, right? <laughs> any, any, uh, any father knows that uh, very right. well. Um, right. My last question for you is uh, you mentioned effectiveness and not, you didn't use the word efficiency. And I think that's, uh, there's a big difference between the two. 
what do you do on a daily basis to make sure that you're being effective? Um, any practices, any habits, uh, any routines that you do to make sure that you're being effective? So my wife and I laugh about this a lot. Um, I am a, a, a major fan of, I may not have talked about efficiently before, but of, of efficiency and of, and of to-do lists. So I really, I think that one of the reasons that I have been able to do so many different things at the same time, which is something I really have enjoyed in my career, is it is a habit from being a lawyer as you do think of your time, your day as your inventory. So I, the, the, you know, the blessing right now by being in house as a lawyer is I don't have to bill my time in the way that you do at a, at a law firm, but that practice, that habit of thinking about your, your inventory of your impact is your time. And so I can allocate every morning what that day's time is going to look like. And that, that's how I think about it. So I, I have blocks and I usually, I can map it out sometimes by hours and I'll be like this day writing will get, you know, 2.75 hours and then law is going to get 8.25 and, and family miscellaneous will get this piece. And then I have to do a bunch of phone calls around this. And I, and then I can think about, I can organize the day that way. And it's, it's, you know, anybody who's a to-do list type person, you know, that satisfaction you get when you're checking things off. Are you doing that daily in the morning, the night before you're doing it every morning and through the day. So what time will you wake up in the morning? Uh, I, you know, seven fifteen usually. I mean, I should be doing a little earlier with the kids, but usually seven fifteen. I usually go to sleep about about usually about one. Okay, what are you doing at night? Working? I usually we're trying to do a better job of it, but um, I'm usually I'm usually accomplishing uh, still a bunch of stuff between nine and and eleven thirty. Okay, almost every night. And, and and that's usually in a in a that's that'll be in two or three different areas. And uh, so morning, are you um, creating that list uh, when you get to the office? Are you doing it before? Like yeah, I've got the two three year olds. So my the you know it's I mean just even getting the paper read is an accomplishment. Like when we're when I'm juggling them, getting them fed and dressed and and everything else. But it's usually when I get to the office the first half an hour or 20 minutes is, is, is the plan for that day, for that day stuff that I want to get done. And I really take a kind of perverse pleasure in that, awesome. <laughs> in that awesome. plan. Cool. So I think it's, it's interesting taking the lawyer mindset and applying it um, to a place where you might not have to, but you've taken the effectiveness that does come with being a lawyer and anyone that's worked with lawyers know it was about billable hours and, but how you have to be organized with that. And, but the great thing, so the great thing about this, this, this new, you know, um, this chapter in my career is so being in a, so I'm on the executive team here and the general counsel direct report to CEO. And it's this, you know, we have like, 200, almost 250 employees now at this at Willow Tree is that the you know lawyers in a lot of contexts don't value efficiency because their work and their incentive structure the way that the, that their entities are set up is 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 the opposite whereas the great thing and a lot of in-house GCs will tell you this but especially if you're on the executive team and especially if you're um you know if you're in a lean situation with with with, you know, and you're 
with a direct report to the CEO is you really have an incentive to just get the problem solved. And so the, you know, whatever context it is, whether it's some HR situation that has created challenges or whether it's like a real strategic thing with, you know, like a, a lease or, or a big contract that needs to be landed, which, which a lot of the time we have, because these, these multimillion dollar contracts that there sometimes can be really big issues with them. So just, finding the right piece and bringing it in and 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 landing it with with the team and doing that really efficiently is is um just it it the, the this is the best way to be a lawyer that I know of is is the generalist general counsel thing where where you you have returned it's not specialized you your your job is to be a counselor yeah. rather than just a lawyer. So you're you're a counselor. You're counseling. You you have that role, and it really is. I mean, to me, that the most um, rewarding kind of blessing in it is is that it really is applied wisdom. To go back to that theme before that, that's the job is to try and solve problems using wisdom and counseling everybody um, to 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 get the thing done. Yeah, you you sort of think about your journey. Or it's a, I think about your journey. You've got uh, problem solving, uh, coming up with solutions for the environment, editing, writing, problem solving, c- trying to maximize that part of your journey, um, coming up with solutions politically, um, constantly trying to effectively and efficiently solve problems. And it sounds like where you're at right now. The other part that really stuck out to me that I think we kind of glossed over is the mentor that you had and his ability to help you effectively and efficiently solve problems. And um, that seems to be a thread, even as you start shifting from maximizing to wisdom, it's still leveraging wisdom to effectively and efficiently solve problems. Right. Yeah. I, I, I totally agree. And all these, I should say that, you know, and this is not to, to discount or, or criticize academics in the slightest. My wife is an academic and I, you know, I did do, I did do this PhD and I've, I've really over the years, it's like, well, why, why did I do that? How did that fit in? And there's, there's reasons that I've been drawn to this world of practical application and really doing a lot of this work and the way that, that wisdom or insight or ideas or depth of study or research, whatever, all that that you get out of academic study for me in just my path, I have really relished putting it into this practical context where there's where there's there's an answer a decision or an impact right at the at the end of all of it and that that to me at at this ripe age of 45 is how i've seen the best way to put in um the kind of um the academic approach very cool so i want to i want to just give you a platform to promote anything that you're passionate about um i want to give you a megaphone to uh, just promote anything that you might be up to or anything that is important to you. Um, well, in early stages, I am working with a number of different organizations, including the Anti-Defamation League and a couple of major think tanks on a project that is going to be um, focused on solutions, approaches and solutions to extremism and intolerance from both the public sector and the private sector in the wake of Charlottesville. So this will be things like um, when Charlottesville sued um, the militia groups that invaded us with the help of Georgetown University and a center of constitutional advocacy there, 
Um, that has led to a couple of settlements already where the groups have agreed not to come back armed as they were. That's a very novel public sector approach to dealing with extremism and intolerance. And there are dozens and dozens of things like that happening around the country. And I'm very interested in getting groups together to, to study and, and advocate for public sector approaches to extremism and intolerance. Same token, private sector, what's happening with social media companies or retail companies or, you know, like Airbnb decided to cancel the reservations of a lot of people who came for the Unite the Right rally to Charlottesville. They did that as a corporate entity on their own volition. The, the, the role the, pu- the private sector plays in this country is going to be hugely important with this volatility in our politics. So this is um, tentatively titled the After Charlottesville Project um, right now, and it will produce you know, a report and a lot of ideas and convene a lot of people around those two areas over the next year and a half. And that'll, that's kind of getting started right now. And I'm also, um, going to be writing a book about what happened in Charlottesville and, um, really trying to learn from sort of a perfect firestorm of several underlying fires that got started on the first amendment on social media and trolling and a number of the other things we've talked about. And again, really trying to learn from them and how to, and what wisdom is there to be extracted from this at the same time is also kind of telling a more full story about from beginning to end what, what really happened here. Um, and, and some things I think that will really surprise people. Um, and so put it all together in one place. So those are the two projects that over the next, you know, 48 months I'm, I'm working on. And and I know you have a website. If people want to check out the books that you've written, uh, give us the website name. And then I know you're also on Twitter as well. So give us your Twitter handle as well. So people can find you. Website is www.michaelsigner.com. And last name is S as in Sam, I G N E R. And then Twitter handle is Mike Signer. And Mike, I just want to thank you, A, for the time. Uh, B, I was actually in Israel when everything was happening here. Oh, wow. And so uh, for my generation, we grew up, my grandma's a Holocaust survivor, and we wow. always grew up with our parents telling us that this type of stuff is out there. And I think my generation, we just sort of said, that's a thing of the past. And um, for me, being in Israel, going to the Holocaust Museum in Israel, yeah. while what was going on here uh, is something I'll never forget and had a stickiness to it um, that changed, I think, my perspective on uh, Nazis, the Ku Klux Klan, hate groups. Sure. Um, so I know it was certainly a traumatic experience for your community, but I want to thank you for your leadership. Um, and I think, um, you know, whenever there's chaos, uh, there is no perfect way to handle it. Um, so I just want to thank you for showing class and dignity. Uh, and I think creating a little bit of safety, um, like we were talking about earlier. Mm. Um, and, uh, just for your leadership. And I've I've heard you speak uh, in public and, uh, you're inspirational person. And I think your mom was right. There is some, some special sauce in you, just like there is in all of us. And, uh, so I want to thank you for the time and thank you. thanks for hosting me and giving me a, a great reason to come down to beautiful Charlottesville, which I know honor, it's an honor to have you here. <laughs> Everybody y'all come visit. I mean, that's the biggest, it's a great city. Don't, you know, that these images that have been sort of thrust on us, 
they came here because of how progressive and creative and tolerant we are. So just come here and see for yourself. It's really one of the world's great cities and and we're we're staying that way even even more than than before. So it and and you're going you're seeing that here now. And a quick story just to promote Charlottesville is uh they've got this great downtown area where there's a restaurant. Seems like there's basically a restaurant Every, everywhere. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so it's my kind of place cuz I like to eat. Um but you there's a person out right now downtown who has a blindfold on has a sign doing hugs and he's doing hugs yeah. <laughs> and the people that are walking yeah. up to him and giving him hugs yeah. you i couldn't believe the diversity of people yeah. Yeah. we had uh, you know i'm just sitting there eating lunch and you know a white guy with a ponytail with a guitar on walks up to him uh, a young black person with dreadlocks walks up to him um a family with kids walks up to him so um yeah. there is a diversity here that i think um is unique and you can feel it as soon as you start walking around. So come to Charlottesville. Yeah. I'm excited to eat dinner tonight and spend the day tomorrow as well. So thanks for giving me an excuse and, and for coming on the podcast. Thank you. Thank you for listening to intentional performers with Brian Levinson. Here is this week's episode. Jam. I am a, uh, a major fan of, I may not have talked about efficiently before, but of, of efficiency and of, and of to-do lists. So I really, I think that one of the reasons that I have been able to do so many different things at the same time, which is something I really have enjoyed in my career, is it is a habit from being a lawyer is you do think of your time, your day as your inventory. So I, the, the you know, the blessing right now by being in-house as a lawyer is I don't have to bill my time in the way that you do at a, at a law firm. But that practice, that habit of thinking about your, your inventory of your impact is your time. And so I can allocate every morning what that day's time is going to look like. And that, that's how I think about it. So I, I have blocks and I usually, I can map it out sometimes by hours and I'll be like, this day writing will get, you know, 2.75 hours and then law is going to get 8.25 and, and family miscellaneous will get this piece and then I have to do a bunch of phone calls around this and I and then I can think about I can organize the day that way. 